How much is there a relationship between pain and the lack of sleep? And if either or both of these factors result in depression and mood swings? Talking to me today about the research being done into this, I have with me in the studio Dr. Mark Charlton and Lauren Brown, a researcher from the University of Newcastle. Hello, I'm Iris Nichols and welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. Thank you both very much for coming in. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Before we start, Lauren, can you tell me where you are in your studies in the university? Sure. I'm doing some postgraduate studies, so I've done a psychology degree, and I'm now in about my third or fourth year of health psych, so nearly finishing up. And how did you get the idea to do this particular study? This research actually came from when I worked as a telephone counsellor. I did a, a lot of night shifts, and during that time I was rung by a lot of people who couldn't sleep, and often that was because of pain, so I kind of started thinking about that and why wasn't there something out there for for people to do to help themselves with it and that's often what they were saying to me that there was just nothing they could do. So when did you actually start on the study starting to get it up and running? That would have been a couple of years ago so about two years ago just researching and what's actually out there for people who are in pain and can't sleep but then we started recruiting and things about 12 months ago. And how much of research has been done in the past between the relationship between sleep and pain? Yeah, There's been a lot of research, but unfortunately it's only really worked in one direction. So a lot of the focus has been on can we fix pain, can we improve people's pain, and what does that do for other factors such as mood and sleep? But very little research, only a few studies that I can find have actually looked at, well, can we fix people's sleep or can we improve people's sleep and how does that affect pain? And how does that affect their lives if we actually improve their sleep? As far as you're concerned, what has the study found in that link between pain and sleep? Is there more concern than you first thought? Uh, I think we've had a lot of response um, for the research. I think, though, people are often still looking for something for their pain. So that, that's been one of one of the findings, I guess, is that people are still really keen to, to try and improve their pain. And and fair enough, but what we're offering is slightly different. So there, there have been a lot of people interested in that as well. So they're kind of at a point where they understand that there's nothing out there at the moment that will help with their pain. They, they're managing it as best they can. And so they're looking to improve their sleep as part of that management. Were they surprised at your taking them on to the sleep factor rather than looking at their pain? I think we set it up from the start that that was what it was about. Mm. But I think a lot of um, the participants in this study have done uh, similar, or not similar programs, but programs that have looked at lifestyle skills and management. So they're more in that headspace, I guess, where they're looking to improve their lives as much as they can, living with what they have or working with what they have. Does consistently having disturbed sleep lead to depression and, and mood swings? It's a tricky one to answer because what they've shown is that they're related. So people who have depression have poor sleep and people who have poor sleep generally um, at an increased likelihood of developing mood problems, so maybe depression or anxiety, but they're still not sure which one came first. It's a bit like the chicken and the egg. It is, exactly, (laughs) yeah. Does a person become more aware of pain or depression or what have you, if they're not having a good night's rest? 
Yeah, that's a good question because I think, well, most people would know what it's like not to have a good night's sleep, maybe as a one-off and know what it feels like the next day when it's just tough to get going and, you know, you're not in the best of moods and things are just a bit harder to deal with. Mm. So for people with chronic pain, they, they experience that. But then because they're already having to manage at such a different level, they've got so many other things to think about. It just makes that their day so much harder. Do these people have pain relief and something to help them sleep? If they're on medication like that, does that make a difference to their sleeping attitude? It can make a difference. Some people choose not to take sleeping medications because, well, ideally sleep sleep meds would only be prescribed for a short period mm. of time, so you'd only take the tablets for a little while. So some people only take them occasionally. And some people find that they don't get... Uh, what they describe as proper sleep. So they feel a bit jet lagged the next day or they feel like they're more tired or more fatigued, can't wake up the next day. So mm. they prefer not to take them. And then some people rely on those because they, they feel that they get benefit out of them. So I guess there is a difference in attitudes towards sleep. Yeah, And I guess that if you're feeling groggy all day long, everything becomes magnified in what you're doing. I mean, if, if you've got pain, you're more aware perhaps of the pain. Than, yeah, know. I think so. I think it can be even harder to, to get something done. If the pain is disturbing the sleep and the lack of sleep makes them more aware of the pain, does this become a vicious circle? Yes, definitely. I would even go as far to describe it as a, a spiral, so a downward mm. spiral where people don't get good sleep and so their pain experience is heightened and then because they've had a, a very painful day sleep is a continuation of the day mm. so then it's harder to get to sleep the next that night and the cycle continues. Do some of them sort of go and put their feet up during the afternoon and, and have a snooze and if so does this lead to them not having a proper night's sleep because they've had a, a cat nap does you know does that cycle come into it as well? It can. Uh, you can nap in a good way that doesn't affect your sleep at, at night. And some people know about that, but lots of people don't. So if you have a 20-minute nap before about 3 o'clock, 2 or 3 in the afternoon, then it shouldn't affect your sleep at night. But some people have been told that they they shouldn't sleep during the day because mm -hmm. they won't be able to get any sleep at night. So they force themselves to stay awake. And other people just become really tired, but then they might sleep for a long period and then they can't get a good night's sleep. Mm. So yes, it's true. There's, And there is information that we know about, but unfortunately not everyone knows this. So. so when your study is finished, will you be able to sort of put out pointers for these people to explain it to them and, and make it available to the general public? Well, that's actually an interesting question because one of the areas of the research is a self-help booklet. Mm. So that has some pointers in it. And if we found that that was effective, that would be something that you know, we could apply for funding for and, and go further with that. But that might be something that GPs could hand out or something like that. So everyone would have access to it. I mean, by everyone, I mean the general public will have access to it just to encourage them to to find out more about sleep, I guess. That would be the idea yeah. behind it, yeah, yeah. To, to get the information that researchers know about out to the people that mm. are actually struggling with the sleep. That would be ideal. Is getting the information out from your or from any study out into the public, is that hard? Oh, I might have to ask Mark to answer that question. <laughs> I think it can be, is that when you look at 
psychology as a profession and as a, a an academic discipline is that then we look at how the Australian Psychological Society views psychologists in general as, as scientist practitioners. We work under the assumption that research, the scientific arm mm. of, of psychology, should translate into clinical side, the, the, the practitioner side. The big problem is that it often doesn't. Okay, and it's not a problem in in the sense of uh, the practitioners themselves, the professional psychologists. That's not what I'm saying. It's just sometimes there can be difficulty from an academic point of view, where we publish in, in a research journal. It can be difficult then for practitioners to access that information easily and quickly. When we look at, at journals, the sus subscriptions can be rather expensive, and if you're a, a professional who is looking at at pain, you going and sleep, you're going to not only need to look at those issues of pain from the academic side of, of psychology, but would also need to then look at potentially some physiological, biological type of, of areas as well. So it can be an expensive impost on practitioners to gain access to that information. So I suppose, in a roundabout way, it is hard or can be hard to get information to the practitioners who need it. And then that obviously makes it very difficult for, for the lay person, the average person out there in the community to access it as well. My guests today, Dr Mark Charlton and Lauren Brown, are discussing with me their study into the relationship between sleep, pain and depression. Mark, when you decided to go ahead with the study, how did you get people to be involved with it? Mm. What we did basically was use a, a media release. So we went through the, the university um, media centre and um, they put out a, a media release that we developed in, in consultation uh, with them and that just went out to the local media here within the, the Newcastle area and people then heard that or read about it and then got in contact with us via phone or, or email or whatever was easiest for them. Mm. And did you have a good response? Yeah, I think it was relatively good. One of the bits that I, I was pleased in some sense is I'd, I'd done a project with another student and we that went Australia-wide and we ended up with about 300 people getting in contact with us. We certainly had nowhere near that number from the local area. Uh, it was a reduced number, but but not too bad. I think one of the issues that we, we have found is that it's it's not so much a, a problem getting access to people who have these, these problems in the community because we can look at... Um, chronic illnesses, chronic disability being about 20% of the population suffers from, from those sorts of disorders. So there's a lot of people out there. We've got people contacting us, but it's hard for people, particularly with a pain condition, to continue through in terms of the intervention process. Mm -hmm. Is that the pain itself, they need help, but then even when help is, is, is being provided, it can be difficult for them physically to get there on the times that they need to. And once again, that impacts on, on how they feel about things. Mm. And I guess if they once they start to be involved in a, in a study and they want to keep going, they've got to stay within those time limits. Very true, Iris, is that, I mean, th this is one of those, those problems, I suppose, when, when we're trying to conduct clinical research is that you've got two things that you're trying to actually um, keep in balance. One is, is the care of, of the actual individuals themselves to make sure that they're getting the full benefit from whatever the intervention that you're actually conducting. And the other bit is related to that is the, the methodology that, that we need to actually stick to ensure, to ensure that whatever results we find are actually valid and reliable. And those sometimes can come into conflict with each other. When you found the people, did you find they told you they were not sleeping because of the pain? while others said it was the lack of sleep that made them more aware of it. 
and how was that defined? An interesting question, one I, I'm actually going to throw back to Lauren a little bit because Lauren's had more of the dealings with the actual people mm. themselves face to face. So, How did you define which was which? It was done by self-report, so we really did ask people, did the pain come first and then the sleeping problems, did they come? And people would sometimes say, oh, I've never been a very good sleeper, but I know that my sleep got worse after I got the pain because we were really interested in looking at insomnia secondary to chronic pain, which means that the pain came first and then the sleeping problems Mm. came. So perhaps we didn't get as broad a, a people who are affected by sleep problems and pain because of that because some people might have had their sleep problems first but generally the people that rang up and I spoke to had the pain condition first. Now if constant pain is a leading factor in depression how can you sort that out between lack of sleep being a cause of depression? I'm not sure. (laughs) If if they say that they're depressed because they've always got the pain Mm -hmm. and others are saying they're depressed because they can't sleep because of the pain, yes. How do you how do you separate those two? Yes, that's a good point because that's actually kind of what we're looking at in the research. Nobody really knows. They they often draw this cycle and show that there's pain, sleep, and depression, but they're all together and they don't know how they relate. And Mark can explain it further, but we basically can't show causality, so we can't show prove what causes one thing, what came first. Mm. Um, We can find things that are related. So we can get closer and closer to it, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to see if improving one thing affects the other and how that works, and then we can get a bit closer to it. But so far, I don't think we can ever prove causality. It's Not 100%. I mean, I think what we can begin to do, Iris, is that there are some statistical techniques that you can use whereby you can begin to to tease those things out a little bit more clearly. So, for example, is that there's there's a design method out there or an analytical technique called a cross-lagged panel design. And one of the things that you can look at variables, for example, depression, sleep quality, pain severity at at time one, you can then measure those things again at time two, so that might be four weeks down the, the, the track, and then at a third time point, for example, it might be eight weeks or 12 weeks. And what you can begin to do is you can use this cross-legged panel design to be able to see, okay, if depression, how does it impact on at time one, how does it impact on depression at time two, how does it impact on pain severity at time two, and further then you start looking at time two what are those changes there how do they then impact at, at the, those variables measured at, at time three so you can begin to to tease out some of those causal relationships you're not a hundred percent sure that this a, a depression at time one will mean your pain severity at time two will be such and such a level you can't say that with a hundred percent accuracy but what we can begin to say is that the in all probability, there seems to be a very strong and reliable linkage between this variable at time one and the variable at time two. And I suppose that's one of the things that I myself am very interested in. It's that notion of looking at a process analysis. In other words, how do the things at, at, at time one change over time? What are the influences, for example, on, on sleep quality? What is it? Is it because the person begins to feel less depressed or, or, or what have you? How does that cause the change at time two? And then how does that impact on a person changing again at time three? And I think another bit that's, that interests me there, I, get, I do get excited about stats, which is a bit sad, but anyway, um, I'm sure my students know that. But one of the things that's interesting is that then you can start to look at 
how do those changes occur over time? Why did someone who may well have, have had this belief that, that sleep quality isn't that important, how do they then change and say, well, well, actually it is important to me? What caused them to shift? What changed their cognitions? And I think you know one of the things as psychologists is that we're very interested in looking at what goes on inside the head. What are the thoughts? What are the beliefs? What are the attitudes? In other words, what are the cognitions mm. that impact us or packed on us in terms of our behaviour, the way that we process information. That sounded a bit complicated, but I think <laughs> I've got the general drift of that. If there's a change between part one and part two, can that also mean that the patients or the, the study person, that there's a change in their actual pain, in their physical condition, so maybe the pain is less by the time they've been with you for a month or two months? And does this make a difference in their sleep pattern? Looking at the first part first, um, does their pain level change? Is that what we're seeing is a change in their perception of their pain level? Okay, so any of the measures that we're actually getting are measures that are saying that how do you perceive your pain to be now? I think there's no no such thing as an objective measure of, of pain intensity for a person. It is it is very subjective, and from my point of view, and I think from Lauren's point of view and, and most researchers, is that the notion of a subjective measure of pain intensity isn't a big thing because what's important is that it's how the person themselves with the pain condition feels, how they perceive things to be. So what we're saying is that we hope that people, for example, in the cognitive behaviour therapy group who get an intensive four-week uh, intervention, learning about sleep hygiene, learning about appropriate ma ways of, of thinking about things, dealing with problems, looking at their behaviours, what we would hope that for those individuals would have a reduction in their pain severity ratings after four weeks. Okay. Most of us have a different pain threshold. We can. So is it their individual pain threshold that you're working on rather than the overall look of this will lower your pain increase your pain or whatever so do you, you obviously take them as individuals but if that's the case where do they fit in your study we ask them to fill out questionnaires first mm -hmm. and we see where they are and some people will be at completely different levels with pain and and with sleep and then we do the intervention and part of the we do cognitive behavioral therapy which is a lot at looking at behaviors and thoughts and how they relate to sleep they're able to work that to fit for them and so I answer a lot of questions. So we work with what their particular issues or what they particularly want to work with mm. for them. So it can be, we can have lots of people, but everybody's doing their own. So it might be for some people that they just can't get to sleep at night, whereas other people, they wake up really early. And that's very different and different reasons for that. But they can work kind of alongside each other on, on a similar issue. So when you have your people in for your study, do you see them individually or do you see them as groups? Yeah, well, with the cognitive behavioural therapy, they're groups and that's really, it's a really good thing, I think. Mm. They can learn from each other, shared experiences and there's been a lot of feedback from the groups that it's been just really good to know that there's other people out there who have similar experience. Mm. And I catch up with people over the telephone so, and that's with the, the booklets that I was mentioning earlier. Yeah. yeah. I've had people in talking to me before and they often say that being in a group makes them aware that they really aren't one person alone. Yes, that's, that's what we, the mm. feedback we've been getting from the groups is, yeah. Mm. 
You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm talking today to researcher Lauren Brown and Dr. Mark Charlton. Lauren, how long will this study take? We're kind of at the final stages of it now and hopefully we'll be finished by about June and that includes the the write-up so we can have some results by mid to late 2007 which would be really good to have some feedback for everyone. And then what happens? From there, we're actually linked in with the uh, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital uh, which is a sleep disorders unit in Mm. Sydney. Mark, you're also doing some work with the Hunter Integrated Pain Service. Mm. So what I guess we'll do is try and use whatever findings we have in, in our own practice as well as you know getting it published in journal articles for other people to use the information as well. And can it firmly be established that there is a, a link between the three factors? I would say that uh, research so far has established that link but we don't know a lot about it. Every research or journal article you read, uh, they talk about this link between chronic pain, depression or mood and sleep but we're not sure how it works. So I think we can go a lot further into finding out what works and our our research hopefully will contribute to that. And I think one of the advantages in some senses of of Lauren's work, the work that we're doing now, is that it's looking at it from that different direction. It's not looking at it from pain impacting on sleep, but rather sleep towards pain. And one of the things you'd be able to do with that, if we find that there is a strong linkage between that, we can then compare that how does it differ sleep to pain versus the findings from pain to sleep. If they differ, then that's telling us something else again. It's telling us that there's some underlying mechanisms that we don't quite understand yet that we need to further explore. If a participant comes to you and says, look, I've never been a very good sleeper, but now it it practically doesn't exist. I sleep for short times and wake up and worry for several hours and then nod off again. As part of your study, are you able to help them to learn how to sleep? The cognitive behavioural therapy program that we're using, so the intervention that we're using, has been used for people with insomnia and it's been shown to be very effective for people with insomnia. So that's primary insomnia. Mm. We've taken it and adapted it and, and hoping to find that a similar thing will happen for people with chronic pain. So there's a great potential there, but I can't conclusively say that it will help people because we haven't used it with this population or this group before and that's that's one of the interesting things if it shows that there is some change or some benefits then there's no reason besides money <laughs> that we can't get it out to everybody mm. and and that's really good mm. to to start arguing and and putting mm. our point across let's take a hypothetical that you can prove that their sleep pattern can be improved mm-hmm. and thus they manage the rest of their lives better. Will this be able to be put into everyday clinical work in, within, as with patients rather than with a study? I think so. There's definitely potential for that. Uh, there are a lot of multidisciplinary kind of treatments for chronic pain. You'll have a GP and a specialist that can work with your medication and then you might have a psychologist or a physio. Mm-hmm. So perhaps we can really beef up the sleep part of that and if we show that this program is effective that people might be able to adapt it within their their existing program. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely potential either as an individual thing where the groups are just run separately for people who who identify with sleep problems or 
to slip it into something that's already existing. Because I know that a lot of the programs do have some interventions for sleep, but they're probably not as extensive as what we're doing now. And taking that the next step into depression and mood swings situation, it'll be able to be used in with that. So you actually have three main factors which are all linked in together after the study's over and you can actually go and put it into physical practice if you like. Yes. With depression, if they say that they feel that the pain is the, the major cause of their depression, mm-hmm. do you take that as a separate item rather than linking it with the sleep or you do pain and depression, sleep and depression? In this research, we're really focusing on the sleep and pain link. From that, we're just kind of examining what that does for mood as well, but it's not our primary focus. So we won't be able to pull that out as clearly as what you're just describing it, but we are examining it as well. But the main focus is what sleep does for pain. If a participant's already on medication, does this make a difference to the findings of your study? Potentially it could. As a lot of research would exclude people that are on medication or ask them to stop their medication. We didn't do this in this research for the one reason that a lot of people who have chronic pain take some form of medication. And perhaps it's not even related to the pain, but it could just be another condition, like a heart condition or something like that, that they need their medication for. And we wanted it to be our results to be generalised to the community so that if it's shown to be effective, the community can use it and it's not just the little lab results I guess a very defined population but there are statistical things that you can do to control for people's medication but that comes after the research and it's probably more Mark's area with the stats so (laughs) I was just going to concur with what Lauren was saying there is that there certainly are ways statistically that you can take out that that impact of potential impact of, of medication and so if we're now seeing differences for individuals in our CBT group versus our self-help group versus the waiting list control group we can say those differences are not due to medication they're actually due to the intervention itself mm-hmm. so yeah, at a statistical level we do that and I think you know one of the one of the issues as Lauren was saying is that I think it's important for, for research to also tap into community samples it allows you to generalize that to the, the community and we know people in the community are going to be using medication at some level either for as you suggested Mm -hmm. before iris for the sleep or for the pain or both and include depression antidepressants as well so it was appropriate i think for us to to not exclude people because of using medication it was appropriate for us to allow them into the program now when the study is over if as a result of your findings you think you could take something else out of that and specialize either in the sleep pat or this pain would you be looking at a further study to highlight these things Mark and I were talking about it earlier. There's definitely potential for more and more research in this area because it's so limited so far. And from our findings, hopefully either ourselves or someone else can build on that Mm. and take it a bit further and explore it more. Even um, interventions that we use, we could do video recordings or tape recordings or something, internet, because Mm. there's lots of people with chronic pain who can't come into the groups so looking at that. And I was just going to say, if I can, um, mm. Iris, is to, to support that, is that having people being able to access information mm. either via the, the web 
or I mean here appropriate information, mm. valid information um, from the web or via CDs or DVDs, I think is an, an excellent thing. For example, Hunter Integrated Pain Service do have a web page that has some basic information for people to, to access, people who have chronic pain conditions. That's a nice intervention at a, at a very simple, easy level. It's, it's cost effective, I suppose, if you want to use the jargon of of hospitals. Um, but it's something we could certainly do and have thought about is that maybe we can go through and develop this into a DVD, a, a presentation that people see, listen, hear, and then get some, some homework that they can do themselves. That would require funding to do another study, but it certainly is something that would be an appropriate study to do because what it means longer term is that if it works, we can give easy access to people in the community who need to have that information at their fingertips. And I guess with all these things, if you can find a way around a continuing problem, then the overall cost to the community is lessened by a great deal. Very much so. I mean, I, I'm, I suppose I have a little bit of a philosophy in a soapbox that I tend to get on a bit, um, and that really is the notion that, that prevention is better than cure. And I think one of the bits that we as health psychologists try to look at is that it's it's not so much getting in at the, the end stage where, where you need to try to have some curative process, but rather get in early and say, look, let's, let's help these people and stop them from actually getting to, to such an extreme extent that they're so desperate to, to take anything they can. So my soapbox is, yes, let's have things out there for people in the community so that we can stop them getting to the end level. To both of you, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've been talking with researcher Lauren Brown and Dr Mark Chalton from the University of Newcastle. Until the next program of Wellbeing, I'm Iris Nichols and I thank you for listening and from all of us here, we wish you well.